Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, pastoring at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. A little behind this week, recording this this morning, Friday, May 19th, and hopefully getting it out today because it's just been a crazy time, isn't it? Isn't it wild how spring just begins and is so busy? (laughs) Spring kicks off and it's just like the schedule is so full. And so many things are happening. But it's good. Uh, seasons are great. Uh, the The difference of seasons through the year is a reflection of the beauty and order and kindness of God, isn't it? So thankful that you are here with me today listening to this, and uh, we will be going to John chapter 12. John 12 is where we will be in our going through the New Testament, following along the schedule created by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And next week, it's kind of interesting, uh, there's a uh, Joseph Smith version of Matthew that is on the schedule, where Joseph Smith had what his church would go on to call an inspired revision of the Bible for Matthew, the end of Matthew 23 and then Matthew 24. So... I've actually never never looked at that issue. I've looked at the Joseph Smith translation quite a bit, but I've not looked at the Joseph Smith revision of that part of Matthew that's found, I believe it was in, in the Pearl of Great Price. So next week we'll get into that. But for this week, we are in John chapter 12. So let me switch over here so you can see the text, starting in verse 27. John 12, 27. Jesus says, to the crowds after his triumphal entry. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Wow. Great passage, and there's more to see here in this passage that we'll get to in the following verses. But here you have another instance of the Father speaking from heaven about the Son. And this is something, uh, or this particular event, I should say, is one that is often forgotten, I think. Most people remember Jesus' baptism or the transfiguration. But here's this moment where the Father says that he has glorified his name, and will glorify it again. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, 
And the father responds, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That's pretty cool. Uh, so I guess technically <clears throat> what the father is saying here isn't about the son. That's, I think that's how I phrased that a moment ago. But it's about his own name. He, is, he has glorified his own name and he will continue to glorify his own name. Now the people around, of course, were a little taken aback here. I mean, it's not every day you hear the voice of the father thundering from heaven. And that was their explanation, right? Saying it had thundered. Some said it was an angel. But Jesus said, this happened for you, not for me, but for you. Jesus, of course, was very familiar with the voice of the Father, very familiar with communication with the Father. And here they had the benefit of hearing the Father's voice and really stating his ultimate goal in all that he does to glorify his own name. That's, that's what God is up to in the world. And, uh, and Jesus talks about what's going to happen next. How is the Father going to glorify his name? Well, he's doing it through the work of the Son. The ruler of the world is going to be cast out. There's judgment upon the world now, but the ruler is going to be cast out. And all men are going to be drawn to him by him being lifted up. So what Jesus is saying here is that he's going to be providing salvation through his death. That's the, the heading in the New American Standard Bible above verse 27, that Jesus foretells his death, that Jesus is going to die. And in so doing, he's going to break the power of the evil one. This is repeated in Scripture in a few different places, but Colossians 2 would be a great cross-reference where it talks about how Jesus is disarming the evil forces of the world. When someone is transferred from darkness to light, when someone is put in the kingdom of the beloved Son through salvation, that the power of the ruler of this world is is cast out. That person is no longer under the authority or power of Satan. And so Jesus here, as verse 33 says, he was indicating the kind of death by which he was to die. And that really confused the people because the the people, the crowds, the general society familiar with Judaism and at any level really, understood that Messiah was to come and that Messiah was to be a king and to have a kingdom and to have authority, to have rule and power, etc., etc. And so for him to say he's going to be lifted up and indicating the type of death he's going to die, it's like, well, wait a second, um, that's not how this program is supposed to work in the minds of the people. Uh, we, we've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever, they say. How can you say that he's going to be lifted up? He's going to be crucified. How could you say such a thing? And of course, Jesus, as he typically does, gives them an answer that they're not exactly looking for when he says, verse 35, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. <laughs> Amazing. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. People had to be pretty perplexed. And so here's uh, here's how the narrative continues. The Apostle John tells us uh, what happens next and gives us some commentary as to why it's happening. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. Verse 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them, Yet they were not believing him, or in him, rather. And this is where John now kind of gives us the information about why that's the case. 
he had performed so many signs, he had given them such great teaching, but they were not believing in him. Well, why? Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. All right. Well, interesting development here, right? You've basically got two groups of people, those who are not believing and those who were believing. Uh, Verse 37, it says, Jesus did many signs among them, yet they still didn't believe in him. Verse 42 says, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But then they had this fear of man issue that we'll come back to. So let's start with that first group that did not believe in Jesus. He had performed many signs before them, right before their eyes, but they were not believing in him. John explains that this was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet had said. In Isaiah 53, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, This is all in the context, Isaiah 53, is in the context of the coming Messiah. It's one of those really powerful Old Testament passages that gives us an explicitly illustrative picture of what the Messiah was about to go through. And at the beginning of this passage, where it talks about the Messiah who was to be the suffering servant among the people, dying in their place for their sins, it asks that question, who has believed our report? Well, that was actually in reference to this Messiah, the good news of the Messiah coming. Who has believed in in this good news that the Messiah is coming to die in the place of the people? Well, um, John is telling us this group here wasn't believing. That that's a that corresponds to that Isaiah passage when the question is asked, "Who has believed our report?" Well, we can say not this group. And there's a continuing correspondence that goes on through history. All people who reject Jesus fall into that camp of those who reject the report. Those who uh, who say, no, I, I don't need this news. I, I don't want Jesus. They're the ones that have not believed in the report of the, of the Messiah. And so John, after making that statement, says in verse 39... For this reason, they could not believe. Wow, they could not believe. You see that here? That's, a, that's an ability thing. For that reason, they did not have the possibility of believing. It just wasn't a card that was on the table. And he goes on to quote Isaiah again, where it says that he, God himself, has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and to heal them. There's a blinding that has happened and a hardening that has happened from God himself with the intended purpose of them not seeing, perceiving, or being converted. Now that's a pretty 
hefty statement that actually really runs against the grain of what our natural inclinations think, right? Uh, th this is the same idea that was brought up when the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke in parables. And Jesus's response was to quote Isaiah and to say, well, having eyes, see, they wouldn't see, and having ears, they wouldn't hear. The purpose of parables was to confound the people so that they would not believe. And that is something that a lot of people don't like to hear, but that's what the Bible says. That's what's what that's how it's explained right there. Uh, it's pretty pretty plain. God Himself is blinding and hardening, with the intended result that the people would not be converted. Is is what it says there. Now, um, one of the things that we need to keep in mind as we're thinking of the whole of biblical theology is that it's not like man in his natural state is saying, oh, I just want to be a believer in Jesus. I want to be reconciled to God. I want to uh, humble myself under the mighty hand of God and be saved. We have the explicit testimony of Scripture that man naturally, because of sin, rejects his Creator, rejects salvation, rejects humility. Uh, I mean, you, you see it with children. Why, why do children fuss and fight over toys and no one trained them how to do that? Well, it's because there's sin that naturally dwells within them. Now, that, that's not to say you don't have sweet moments with kids too. Kids will sometimes share their toys, right? But one of those is the rule and the other one is the exception. Am I Am I? hitting home here, right? Uh, hopefully you've perceived that in life. You've witnessed that. And that's because there is sin that lies within every person naturally. Well, when God is blinding and hardening the sinner, he's not doing so against their will. He's doing so in conjunction with their will. They are being blinded and hardened because they want to be blinded and hardened. They are not being converted because they do, do not want to be converted. And it's, and it's not, again, another, you know, wrong way of thinking of this that we want to make sure we're, we're saying. It's not that man is neutral either. It's not that, well, every man has the option. He's morally neutral. He has the option to go one way or the other. And the ones who say, no, um, I don't want God. Well, those are the ones that he chooses to harden. It's not that God is responsive to man's will. Uh, God's will is supreme. God's decree is above all other decrees. So um, it's not that, you know, John is explaining this uh, like, well, all people were given, you know, the, the option, and all people are in this morally neutral state, and those who went thumbs down with Jesus got hardened in response to that. But it's actually much more complex, and it's way above our pay grade. It's way above our abilities to understand what's going on. But it's God's will that's affecting them to not be converted, but it's also not against their will. It's in conjunction with their will and in their natural state. So this whole process of them rejecting the Messiah, not believing, being blinded, all of that is actually harmonious. It's all natural from the sinful human perspective. What is unnatural is when God saves somebody. That's miraculous. That is an act of grace. When someone is rescued from 
Satan's power, as we were just reading about, and put into God's family, that is something that goes against the natural will of man. And so that's uh, uh, something else to consider. But immediately, our concern here is about what this passage has to say, which is that God is hardening. He's hardening and blinding that they would not see, that they would not perceive, that they would not be converted. Now, John continues the narrative here and says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. These things Isaiah said because he, Isaiah, saw his glory. His glory. Whose glory? Well, he saw the very glory of Jesus. He saw Jesus' glory. And we can read about this account. It's not just that this was mentioned out of nowhere that John pulled this thought out of thin air. It's from Isaiah chapter 6. So scroll down here, Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Listen to what happened to Isaiah here, where he saw his glory. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. An amazing scene, isn't it? Well, it all starts here where he says plainly in verse 1, I saw the Lord. Wow. I saw the Lord. And the Lord was sitting on a throne. The throne was lofty and exalted, thus the Lord himself lofty and exalted. And he had a robe, and the train of the robe was filling the temple. It's hard to imagine such a, such a thing, but here Isaiah is giving us this description. Uh, we know that he was seeing Jesus here because Jesus taught in his ministry that no one has seen the Father at any time. Uh, no, one, no one has seen him, but the Son who has come down has revealed him in his ministry, in the person and work of Christ. So he's seeing here the exalted Son of God sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, his robe filling the temple, and the angels flying around, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, that is an unforgettable scene for Isaiah. He witnessed the glory of the Lord, the highly exalted Lord. I mean, Isaiah, there's just no way he was ever the same after that, right? How could he be seeing such a thing? Uh, 
And John makes reference to that when he says Isaiah spoke these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw the Lord, and the Lord gave him his words to speak to the people, these prophecies that were now being fulfilled, that were being manifested among the people during Jesus's ministry. Wow, that's a lot to take in. But let's finish with these last couple of verses, 42 and 43. I'll read them again. It says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers, believed in him, Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So you had some high-ranking people, Jewish people, in that culture who were starting to believe in Jesus. One of these would be Joseph of Arimathea, who eventually got the body of Jesus and placed the body of Jesus in his tomb, a tomb that no one had ever used before. And they were not confessing him. They were not publicly associating with him because they were scared of the social ramifications, fearing man more than they feared God, longing for the approval of man more than the approval of God. This is a a terrible condition to be in, to Love your community more than you love Jesus. To love your community more than you love truth. To love your community more than you love the gospel. Or to have more of an allegiance to the community than you do to the gospel. I mean, it's just a terrible situation to be in, but I see it over and over again. I interact with people who have come to the place where they are embracing the Bible as the sole infallible rule or authority for all matters pertaining to belief and practice. They've come to believe in the biblical gospel. They've even come to believe in the Trinity, but they don't want to confess Jesus publicly because of the social ramifications. They may lose friends. In fact, they probably will lose friends. They could lose family members. They'll stop being invited to stuff. They could lose their job, depending on their situation. That is a cost to pay. But Jesus tells us to count the cost, and he tells us that he's worth it. So if you are someone who's perhaps been following along here, who's been studying the Bible some way, somehow, that you've come to a belief in the biblical gospel, and you're ready to say, I contribute nothing to my salvation. I contribute nothing to my exaltation. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus, the man who is God, was sent here to save me, and by his death and resurrection, I can be reconciled to God once for all by grace through faith alone. If that's where you are, I urge you to stop fearing man. I urge you to stop seeking the approval of man more than the approval of God. But today is the day of salvation. And you, you give it all to him because he's worth it. And let the chips fall where they may. Thanks for joining me on this study. Hope you have a great day. God bless.